For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Russian President Vladimir Putin called the U.S. dollar's drop in dominance, quote, objective and irreversible during the recent BRICS summit in South Africa, as Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa formally agreed to use local currencies instead of the U.S. dollar. It's the first shoe to drop. As demand for the dollar weakens, the buying power of the dollar also weakens. That's why Birch Gold Group is busier than ever. Investors and savers are looking to harness the power of physical gold held in a tax-sheltered IRA. Text MONICA to 989-898 for your free info kit on gold. Thousands of happy customers, an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, and countless five-star reviews you can count on Birch Gold to help you navigate transitioning an existing IRA or 401k into an IRA in gold. As the U.S. dollar continues to receive pressure from foreign countries, digital currency, and central banks, arm yourself with information on how to protect your savings. Just text MONICA to 989-898 to claim your free info kit from Birch Gold Group right now. Hey guys, I'm Monica Crowley, and this is the Monica Crowley Podcast. Thanks so much for joining me here on Hump Day. We are midweek, and I'm so thrilled to have you on board. This is your go-to for hot liberty, a safe space for all of us thought criminals, independent thinkers, and happy warriors. Check me out on social media. On Instagram, I am at Monica Crowley underscore. And on Twitter and True Social, I am at Monica Crowley. Also, the email here for the show is Monica Crowley Podcast at gmail.com. Monica Crowley Podcast at gmail.com. Write me, drop me a note, let me know what's on your mind. Also, today, if you are in Southern California, I am at the Richard Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Linda, and tonight I will be giving a major speech at the library. So if you would like to attend, all you have to do is go to nixonfoundation.org, search for my event, it should be right there on the homepage, click on register, it's free, but you can come on out and see me speak and say hi, and I would love to see all of you too. Okay, so I will have more on my big trip to Southern California, what I've seen, what I have learned. We'll talk about all of that on Friday. Okay, today we're going to do something a little bit different. I want to dedicate today's show to unraveling the weaponization of our own government against us, which to me is the most dangerous threat we face. We've got a lot of threats coming at us. This one to me, the most dangerous. 
because it's coming from the inside, from our own people, from our fellow Americans. That's what makes it so dangerous, along with their leveraging of the entire force of the U.S. government against us. We're going to do that. We're going to take it all apart by talking with one of the deep state's biggest targets who paid a very, very steep price for wrong think, for supporting President Trump, for being America first. His story is a microcosm of what we're up against. Well, I've been looking forward to this next conversation for quite a while. Paul Manafort was one of the original casualties of the deep state war against Donald Trump, which really began in June of 2015 when he came down that escalator. And of course, it continues through today. Paul Manafort took one of the original arrows or bullets in that war against President Trump, which is a constant, constant effort by the ruling class, by the deep state, the permanent uh, bureaucracy, the administrative state, the media, the international community, and so on, to destroy anybody who will not toe their line, anybody who cannot be controlled. Paul is a longtime political consultant and government affairs professional. He was campaign chairman for President Trump during the 2016 presidential campaign. And during that time, he put in place the very structure that delivered the nomination and eventually the presidency to President Trump. Paul previously worked on both the Ford and Reagan campaigns, and he played a key role in the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980. He's also done extensive consulting abroad, including in Ukraine, and he's put out a brand new memoir, which is absolutely fantastic. It's brutally honest, which is exactly what we need if we're going to push back on this deep state war. The book is called Political Prisoner, Persecuted, Prosecuted, But Not Silenced. And Paul joins me now. Paul, welcome. I am so happy to have you here. Monica, it's great to hear your voice again. Thank you. Well, you too. And before we get into what you write about in the book and the absolute hell that they have put you through over the last couple of years, I want to take you back to when I first heard of you, because I'm not sure you know this story. So in the 1990s, as I think everybody knows, I was working with President Nixon during his last years. And every day, Paul, I would go into his office before he arrived to make sure that he was set up for the day and had everything he needed. And every once in a while, a letter would come in from Roger Stone for President Nixon, and the beautiful engraved stationery had a return address of Black, Manafort, Stone, and Kelly. And I remember asking President Nixon about it. We were talking about Roger, but he also raised your name and he spoke so highly of you, really in the highest terms, and how lucky we were to have you on our side. So I wanted to share that with you right now, Paul. And how do you like that memory? Well, that's a great memory. And, you know, it reminds me that when President Nixon would come to Washington, he would literally use my office. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. I mean, I had a corner office at the firm and uh, it was a nice size office and he was very comfortable in it. So Roger would always give me a heads up when uh, when Nixon was coming to town and I made sure that I, if I was going to be in town, I had other things to do so he could have uh, unfettered use because he was such a sweet person that you know, if I was in the office, he would feel guilty about sharing my office. 
Oh, yeah. He would never want to boot you out of your own office, Paul. So he'd like sit in the hallway before he'd boot you out. So that was very kind of you to do. But he really thought the world of you, Paul. And I wanted to share that with you because we really haven't spoken since you and I haven't communicated since 2016. And then, of course, you were put through hell. So let's get into it. There's a lot to cover because you cover all of this in your book, Political Prisoner which is, by the way, the perfect title for your memoir, but also horrifying that we have such things in the United States of America. So let's start, Paul, with 2016. So you're out there, you're living your life, you're doing political consulting, life is good, all is well. And then in the spring of that year, you get a call to join the Trump campaign as chairman. Tell us how that all unfolded. Well, as you remember, Monica, Trump, Trump is the most incredible candidate I think I've ever experienced in my life. And I've had all kinds of very impressive candidates. But Trump was not just a candidate. I mean, he was the campaign manager. He was the strategist. He was the pollster. He was the communications director. You know, the only thing he didn't do was uh, was set up the rallies, although he made sure they were set up properly. Um, and, and yet, you know, as a first-time candidate doing all of those roles – not having a staff to do those roles, he he was whipping the 16 people running against him, and uh, and, and who were more seasoned and had big organizations, a lot of the money raising, and and yet he was the one coming out first every single time. But what he what happened was about somewhere about the end of February, as he was starting to win the primaries, the, the Cruz and Kasich campaigns, and then the Rhinos d- discovered that when Trump left the state after the primary, there was nothing left behind because there was, it was basically a nascent organization. Uh, and so they started going in behind Trump after the primaries and electing delegates. And as you know, it, you know, a nomination is secured by winning the primaries, but also having the delegates on the floor. And and every, every state has its own rules for delegate selection. So the Cruz and company were electing delegates who in some cases were committed to Trump on the first ballot but only on the ballot question, not on the rules of the convention, not on the uh, the offices of the convention, not on the business of the convention. And, and on a second ballot, most of the states, they were free to vote whoever they wanted. Well, Trump all of a sudden starts in Louisiana, just won a big primary, overwhelming number or percentage, and he gets wiped out at the state convention, elected delegates to the national convention. And as you know, Donald Trump, he flips out. <laughs> he yeah, says, yes. They're rigging the they're rigging this against me. They're stealing my nomination. So he called Priebus up and he came in and saw Priebus at the RNC. And uh, he said to Priebus being the RNC chairman at the time. And he said to Reitz, you know, you're stealing my convention or my election, my nomination. And Priebus listened to him for a few minutes and then realized that Trump wasn't paying attention to the rules. He shouldn't have. That was not his job. Mm-hmm. But he didn't understand the distinction between winning primaries and winning delegates. And Trump looked at the people in the office with him and said, is this true? And uh, they didn't know. And so when he walked out of that room, he made some phone calls, among others, to, uh, to Roger and uh, talked about how he needed to get somebody who knew how to run conventions. And Roger told him, well, one of the people who knows how to run conventions is one of the best is my old partner, who you know, Paul Manafort. And that's what got me involved in the campaign. 
You know, I'm so glad that you shared that story because people forget, Paul, that the nomination of Trump was not a foregone conclusion. Even though he was winning primary after primary, there were people out there on our side plotting ways to deny him delegates at the convention in order to deny him the nomination or at least make it a floor fight. And what people also forget about you is that you are very famously known as a delegate hunter. And I have repeatedly reminded people of this over the years, like, hey, the reason Trump brought in Paul is because he's a brilliant strategist, but he was always a famous delegate hunter. So if Trump had the situation at the time of the convention or certainly leading up to it, you were there to make sure that Trump got the lock on the nomination. That made you the indispensable man. Well, I mean, I filled the one hole that he wasn't doing, <laughs> and uh, it was a critical one. Uh, yes. and, you know, and, you know, and because he'd never been involved in politics before, I mean, uh, Trump see, saw the straight line: you win, it's there. You know, and as you know in politics, that's not it's it's not a straight line; it's not even jagged lines. Um, and, and so, I was able once I did the assessment. I, I, I put a marker down and figured out how he could become the presumptive nominee. And we built a plan so that by the, the Indiana primary, which Cruz was expected to win handily, um, you know, I, I could be able to say to the media, Trump now cannot be stopped. Now, what the media didn't know when I was saying this stuff, because I, I, I launched it right after the New York, New York primaries, where he exceeded expectations because we lowered expectations. And then he, and, and then he did resound really well. But I laid out for the media how Trump, there would be no second ballot because the media was trying to put out this theory, there's going to be a second ballot and these delegates Trump is winning are not going to be there for him because they're not his people that are being elected to fill those spots. And I made the point that the people who've been elected, who have been elected regardless of who they really want, if they're bound by the first ballot, then that's all we need because we're going to win on the first ballot. And then I predicted that we'd win by, we'd have the thing locked up by Indiana. They didn't know that I had had Tony Fabrizio, who had run on his poster, do a couple of surveys for me, one of them being Indiana. And I saw that while Trump, uh, Cruz was popular there, Trump was going to win, the, well, was leading in the primary. We had to run it the right way. And we did. We ran it on the right issues and said the right things. And then he won a, a, a lopsided victory. And finally, the media had to finally recognize that the Cruz uh, rhetoric was not correct, that uh, that Trump did have a good hold on the nomination now, that he had filled the hole that existed in his organization, and it had produced, you know, we'd produced some major wins in Pennsylvania, West Virginia, New York, prior to the Indiana primaries, by putting the same skill sets together, and that we had a built, budding organization that was getting involved in the states and staying after we left the states. Um, and so from right after that, that primary in early, early May, rather through the end of the primary season in June, the rhinos and the anti-Trumpers did everything they could to start the stop Trump uh, movement, but uh, it was, it was too late. I had sat down with Priebus. I told Priebus as chairman of the party, and I talk about this in the book Mm -hmm. that it's, you know, he's got an obligation now to, uh, to rally the party behind Trump. Uh, and uh, and that even though Trump was running against other Republicans, it was over now. He had beaten the whole list of them handily, and that as leader of the party now, he had to help me put the party be- together behind Trump. 
previous totally agreed with that and, and you know ne- never pushed back even though he was getting a lot of pressure from some of his constituents in in the party who didn't want Trump and were telling him he needed to be neutral uh, or, or at least uh, you know not help Trump. Uh, yeah. To, yes. And Reince stood for stood strong, and we were able to put together not just the, the, the good convention, but the structure that was going to be used in the general election. And I and I get into all of that as well. Because a lot of these stories weren't told because I was in solitary confinement or in jail uh, when the books were coming out of 2016. Um, and a lot of the pieces that, that weren't told about, I've, I lay out in this book politically. But in the end, it was Trump's you know, vision and his, his indefatigable personality that just wore everybody down. And, uh, and, and he never, as you know, never doubted he was going to win. And these stories, well, he thought election night was all over. He, he never doubted. <laughs> People who think that, Paul have never met Donald Trump or they have not observed him over the last 40 years in public life. So the the convention comes July of 2016. You're still the chairman, but by mid-August, you were gone from the campaign. What happened there? Well, the deep state struck. I mean, you know, unbeknownst to me or to anybody, uh, the whole Russian game was in play. I mean, mm-hmm. it, interestingly, because of the Durham investigation, we now could fill in some very important facts that we didn't have before, which I found out about while I was writing my book. So they're actually in my book. But the first principal fact I found that we found out was when that Clinton in early July 2016 told her campaign manager, Robbie Mooks, to put out that Trump's campaign was working with Putin and Putin wanted Trump to win. It was a total lie. Mooks know it. And he admitted under oath in one of the Durham trials that they knew it was a lie and they put it out there. Uh, so the origin of the Russian collusion hoax, we now have identified. Secondly, within days of that, we now know from John Brennan, the CIA director's own notes, handwritten notes, he took that information and went and briefed Obama. And we also know thanks, that Crossfire Hurricane and Peter Strzok started an investigation to link Trump with Russia on July 30th. So here in the month of July, from the beginning of the month when Clinton creates the hoax, to shortly thereafter when the White House becomes and the CIA become aware of it, to the end of July when the FBI implements the plan, you start to see the deep state at work. And part of the deep state was in Ukraine because they needed a link. They went to Russia, they went to Ukraine. And because I had been so visibly involved in Ukraine, they explored those links. And the problem was that my links in Ukraine, I spent 10 years changing Ukraine and preparing Ukraine to become part of the European community. And I was the link between Kiev and Brussels on all the negotiations on changing the laws and the economic structure and the regulatory structure. So I was very visibly part of the pro-Europe movement in Ukraine, which was 100% opposed by Vladimir Putin. So they came up with a dead end. There was They couldn't get any Russian link. In fact, we, there was a Russian wall in Ukraine uh, to link me. So they created a black ledger, that's what it was called, which was a fake diary series of entries that said I was paid cash for uh, my work in Ukraine. Um, no, I wasn't paid cash. I was you know, paid, paid by wires, and they knew that. Um, and, but, and within two weeks of that going up, going public, the anti-corruption bureau in Ukraine, which was put together by the Obama government and the Ukraine government, 
identified the Black Ledger as a fake document, but that never penetrated the headlines because the salacious headline was Manafort paid cash by Russian, again, Russian government, pro-Russian government, uh, and then talking about me being the link in the campaign uh, to to the, the Kremlin. That became so such a tsunami of, of, of news stories that by the middle of August, I realized that if I stayed in that position, I was going to be, you know, I was going to get in the way of what was a very critical time of Trump defining himself as the nominee of the party now against Clinton, who had just gotten the nomination at her convention. So I publicly stepped aside, uh, privately continued to be involved, as you know, but publicly stepped aside um, and, and thought, okay, I can suffer through this for a couple months because I thought in November after the election, you know, Trump wins, Clinton loses. History goes on like it always has. The Democrats lick their wounds and then start figuring out the next campaign and we get a chance to put the government together. But I was wrong. That's not how it worked this time. Uh, they, this time they started to break the mold and they started to, you know, the woke left had taken over, even though we didn't know it at the time, you know, the whole apparatus of the Democratic Party. And they were coming for wholesale uh, war. And uh, they never recognized Trump's victory um, and spent four years, you know, trying to destroy his presidency. And in the process, just, you know, tried to destroy me. And in some respects, they did, which I talk about in the book, because for them to get Trump, they needed two things. They needed a, a motive for Putin and a link to Russia from Trump. And, uh, and in the book, I walked through Weissman's crazy theories, and they were crazy uh, about how, how that all fit together. Um, but they, and because of, they have no evidence, they have no facts. And so they needed somebody to, who could speak with authority to admit it. And Weissman decided that was Paul Manafort. And, uh, and they came at me hard to try and get me to give him Donald Trump. And, uh, and I wouldn't. And, and the point I kept making was, to give you Donald Trump, I would have to lie. Because there was no Russian connection. There was no Russian illusion. I'm not going to lie. And the more I said that, the more they uh, sharpened their knives, the more they leaked to the media anonymous sources. And ultimately, they, you know, I go through this in the book too, they indict me on a foreign registration filing violation, they claimed, which I already resolved with the fair unit. In the, you know, when the Black Ledger came out in August of 2016, fair unit reads the newspapers. They did what they usually do. Uh, they contact whoever the story is about that, that maybe that needs to be filed. And then they, in a very soft way, not an aggressive, not breaking down doors, you know, ask me to explain why I, didn't, why I didn't think I needed to file. Not saying I was guilty of not filing. Why didn't I think I needed to file? So I engaged my lawyers while I was involved in the campaign. And they had correspondence back and forth with the office. And by, uh, by uh, in early 2017, I agreed to file a very limited filing. Uh, they agreed they had, and understood why I didn't think I needed to, but thought that I could resolve it with a, a limited filing. Uh, and I did it. And there was no penalty, no criminality, no civil, uh, civil uh, charges, no fines, nothing, just file. And I did. And then Weissman and Mueller get appointed. Weissman calls up the head of the Ferry unit and says, uh, what's the status of the Manafort situation? And she said, there is no status. Uh, we've resolved it. And he said, no, you haven't. I'm taking it over. And whatever you think you've resolved, I'm throwing it out. Mm. And then he proceeded to indict me. 
an, an, an issue that I had been resolved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And bring the first criminal indictment. In, it was actually the second in the history of the act, but it was the first in like 70 years. Oh, yeah. Nobody had ever heard of Farah before your case. I mean, it, it was sort of out there, but nobody got prosecuted on it. But again, it's all about creating a pretext in order to create an indictment. So they create the pretext, then they create an indictment. And it's exactly what they're doing to Donald Trump now over this ridiculous document dispute. It is a constant drumbeat of attack against you, against uh, any of us who step forward to want to serve uh, Donald Trump and his extraordinary presidency must be destroyed. It's the same tactics. I exactly. Mean, it's, it's throwing out the big lie, then leaking to the same reporters. Yep. Literally, the same reporters who got leaked to on, on Marlago were the ones getting leaked to on me uh, in 2017. And then the drip, drip, drip of conviction in public uh, in the public arena. Uh, Trump is going to be indicted. Trump has violated the espionage law. These are so serious. He can go to jail. He can't even get attorneys to hire him. Blah blah. blah. None of that's true. All of it's leaking games in the in the game here. Similar stuff with me. I'm a traitor. I'm a spy. I'm reporting into the Kremlin on a weekly basis. You know. And so by the time my trial came, I was convicted in the court of public opinion. I mean, it was over. The trial didn't matter. It still took him four weeks and people lying with you know you know to to get me on a few of the charges. Um, but it's that's the game. And they were hoping when they got me on a few of the charges, they could then squeeze me to give up Trump. And they still couldn't threw me in solitary for 10 and a half months. It didn't matter. They were, they weren't going anywhere. Uh, and, uh, and when I didn't give him Trump, they they basically asked for 20 year sentence in my, for my sentencing when I was seven years old at the time. So 20 year sentence would have put me into jail until I was 90 years old. It's just the whole thing is just staggeringly corrupt. And Paul, I want to take a quick break. I have so many, so many more questions and so much more to cover with you because you were the canary in the coal mine and we're still living with the fallout of, of all of this. More with Paul Manafort on the other side. His new memoir is called Political Prisoner, Persecuted, Prosecuted, but not silenced. But first, hey guys, I know how hard it can be to eat healthy every day and how easy it is to forget to eat the doctor recommended six cups of fruit and six cups of veggies each day, which is why I take Field of Greens. Field of Greens is powered with a full spectrum of essential vegetables and fruits, plus science-backed herbs and prebiotics. This is what I need to stay healthy. Field of Greens works fast, and if you're like me, you'll have more energy, you'll feel healthier, your skin will look healthier, and it can even help you lose weight. So join me now and take Field of Greens too. To help you get started, I got you 15% off your very first order and another 10% off when you subscribe. Visit fieldofgreens.com and use promo code MONICA. That's fieldofgreens.com, promo code MONICA. You're going to love it. We'll be right back with Paul Manafort. Okay, everybody, listen up. We all want to be healthier, right? Well, to get there, we have to have a healthier diet, which is not always easy to do. I can attest to that. You know, that shredded lettuce in a double-double and the fruit filling in a donut are amazing, but they do not count toward the recommended five servings of fruits and vegetables a day. Sorry to be the one to break it to you, 
but they don't. I don't always eat healthy either, but I will share that the Mayo Clinic says if you want to help prevent heart disease, lower blood pressure, and cholesterol, eat five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. I don't, and you probably won't. That's why I take Field of Greens. Unlike other supplements, each fruit and each vegetable in Field of Greens was medically selected by doctors to support your vital organs, like the heart, lungs, kidneys, and the immune system. Flu season is here, and I trust Field of Greens to help me stay healthy. Field of Greens works fast and tastes so good. It's really delicious, guys, and you'll feel better with more energy and you'll notice your skin, hair, and nails will look healthier too. I certainly noticed that in me since I started taking Field of Greens. If you don't always eat right and exercise, join me and take Field of Greens. Let me get you started with 15% off your first order. Visit fieldofgreens.com and use promo code MONICA. That's promo code MONICA at fieldofgreens.com, fieldofgreens.com. All right, we're back with my friend Paul Manafort, who was Donald Trump's campaign chairman uh, in 2016. His new memoir is called Political Prisoner, Persecuted, Prosecuted, But Not Silenced. So, Paul, before the break, you were laying out how, you know, in retrospect, we now know what Trump's enemies in the deep state, propaganda press, international community were up to in plotting to undermine and ultimately destroy him, which is a project that continues to this day. But there was no way of knowing at the time. So uh, my, my question to you is, as, as these arrows started coming toward you about Russia and Ukraine, it was so off the wall. These lies, this false narrative was so insane. It takes a really diabolical mind to come up with that. And of course, it was Hillary Clinton uh, who, who created the entire lie and smear that they leveled against you. But at the time, were you like, what the hell is this? I mean, it, well, nobody had any idea what was coming at them. The first time I heard about it was the, the Sunday of the Democratic Convention, before they, the start of their convention. And as you recall, I ended on Thursday, and the Democrats just started right up, right up on Sunday. And so Primus and I went to Philadelphia to announce a bracketing operation where we were going to be f- following the speakers of the Democratic Convention and, and calling them out on their lies. And we did it at the press conference and some Q&A. And I had a reporter ask me, you know, at, at the, on that podium, what do you make of, uh, of the allegation that Robbie Mooks, the Clinton campaign manager, said, I, I forget one of the morning Sunday talk shows, that uh, the Trump campaign is working with uh, Putin and that Putin wants to see Trump win. And I, I, I can still see myself standing at the podium. I look over at previous to my left and I just sort of give him a quizzical look and he, he sort of shrugged his shoulders. And I looked over back to the, the reporters and I said, well, if that's where we are today, then that tells me that they know they've lost. And uh, because that's so, such a preposterous claim that it will have no credibility that uh, they obviously are trying to deflect from what they know is a losing campaign. And then I, then I moved on. I mean, I didn't think seriously at all. When the Black Ledger came out, I, you know, I figured, okay, because I knew some people in Ukraine who uh, – who were very much into the Clinton Foundation, given millions of dollars, and and who would have done dirty work for them, 
to, to try and hurt Trump and help Hillary wins. So I assume the Black Ledger was part of their work, um, not the FBI's work, which is ultimately we able to now see Clinton campaign pieces on that too. And, and again, I thought it would be over with after the election, but it wasn't. And, and then as, as the Steele dossier hit with even more crazy things, and talking about how Carter Page and I were the links on me to Carter Page, Carter Page to just to Igor Sechin, who was one of the oligarchs of Putin and, and, and Sechin directly to Putin. I never, and at that point, I didn't know who Carter Page was. I never met him during the campaign, never talked to him. I still haven't talked to him. Um, and so, but yet this is in this dossier that's now all of a sudden blowing up everywhere in early January. And I said to myself that my political tenor finally got tuned in. And I realized this is a way bigger thing than I had given it credit for. This is not just a campaign thing. This is the kind of stuff that CIA type of agency stuff that gets involved. And I've been dealing with CIA all over the world for 30 years of my life. And I knew how they could distort things and, uh, and how they could create, uh, you know, th- uh, serious rumors out of nothing. And, uh, and, and so I started realizing there's, there's an intel component to this. Uh, and then when the House Intelligence Committee and the Senate Intelligence Committee and the new Senate and new Congress decided to hold hearings on this, I figured, well, I'm going to have to lawyer up because this is crazy. And, but I was still only looking at it as a congressional uh, investigation. And again, I knew there was no such thing as Russian collusion. I wasn't worried. Trump wasn't worried. Uh, Kushner wasn't worried. So we just had to buckle down and get through it. But then Sessions resigns or recuses himself Mm -hmm. from dealing with anything in the campaign on Russia. That's when I knew the game had gotten into a new level Um, because I understand Washington and I knew that was going to lead to a special counsel. And I knew a special counsel was going to give life to the lie and that we were going to have to dig in. And I knew why I could see the writing on the wall that I was the uh, one of the in one of the bullseyes, not the bullseye. That was safe for Donald Trump, but I was the one right next to it. If it gets to Donald Trump, and they were going to come after me hard, they did. And uh, well, they certainly did. And you know, none of us saw at the time. We were all so wrapped up in the extraordinary nature of Donald Trump and his candidacy because we had never seen anything like that before. Not Reagan, not Nixon, uh, none of them. You know, Donald Trump was a completely different and very exceptional kind of candidate, a populist one. And therefore, he represented an existential threat to the entire ruling class. And he still does, which is why they're still after him. But for those of us who were so kind of caught up in the excitement, and and you were right there, and I was on Fox all the time, uh, you, you know, trying to promote his candidacy, anybody who supported him, we were so excited by the prospect of Donald Trump, Paul, that we didn't. And also, I think we we also lacked a lot of imagination in terms of the extent of the threat, the magnitude of the threat that Trump posed, and therefore the kind of backlash it would generate in trying to undermine and destroy him. And and now we certainly know they cannot allow him to get reelected. I mean, they, they cannot, he is an existential threat to all of them, but none of us saw that at the time. So as you're describing, you, you thought, you know, with every passing month or every new development, it would sort of go away because that's kind of the way the game has always been played. But because Trump was so unique, that was not the way the game was going to be played. 
into uh, this very day. And now you see it, but at the time you had no concept. Well, and, and, and it, there was a confluence of a lot of things that created the perfect storm. There was, there was everything you just said about Trump and, what he, and the threat that he represented. And then there was the, the rise of the Twitter world and the hate and the, and the, first, and, and the concept of the media needing clicks to get, uh, to get you know, in, into the social media and, and get their big contracts. Uh, and, and all of that was permeated on first to file, not first with the facts. And, uh, and, and the Democrats understanding uh, and the deep state understanding how to manipulate these media people, um, it all came together. And, the, and so the, the rumors, the leaks, the, the, uh, you know, the CIA, the CIA quotes uh, that would seem to imply that when would you ever expect high intelligence sources to say something that wasn't true about uh, tying us to giant Trump to, to Russia. It must be true. Adam Schiff then saying he has seen clear evidence, you know, in the skiff that shows Russian collusion. Well, he never took 100% lie. He never saw any evidence. Um, but all of that came together. And yeah, Trump is now trying to put a government together, start to drain the swamp. Uh, and, and so every day he's got to deal with this gnawing at his heels while he's trying to change the country. Um, and all the people and, and all the people around him who were in the crosses, like me and, and Jared in the White House, and uh, they, they were all distracted, trying to, to to figure out why these shoes keep falling when there's nothing there. Um, and and so all of that, you know, was the perfect storm, if you will, to give energy and, and life to what the special counsel was created to then you know, amp up. And, and from day one with the special counsel, he exceeded his mandate, which I, 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 I filed a challenge to, to his mandate in the courts. And of course, Berman Jackson rejected my motion and uh, the court of appeals, you know, liberal court of appeals in DC did as well. Um, but he, from day one, he was way beyond Russian collusion, just like we're seeing right now with Mar- Mar-a-Lago. Yeah, they're, it's a fishing expedition where they got every document in the history of Donald Trump's administration that happened to be at Mar-a-Lago. Um, that, that's not what a, a, an affidavit is supposed to purport to, uh, for a search warrant. And with me, the search warrant that they got from my no-knock when they came in at 6 o'clock in the morning, and I talk about this in the book, you know, at 6 o'clock in the morning, a uh, day after I just finished cooperating with the House Intel and Senate Intel committees, giving them everything they asked for, providing the answers to their questions the day after at six in the morning, you know, outside of my bedroom door, not the door of my condo, my bedroom door was 50 feet inside my, my condo. You know, I hear at six o'clock in the morning as I'm getting up, this is the FBI hands up. We're coming in. Our guns are loaded. Mm. And 15 or 16 FBI agents with flak jackets and guns pointed at me, open my door. Now at that point in time, there was all this stuff about traitor Manafort collusion. You should die. You should go to jail, burn in hell. There could have been any of those crazy people that are outside my door. I didn't know. Why, why would the FBI be knocking on my, my bedroom door at six in the morning when I just finished a week of cooperating with the Senate and the House Intel Committees, giving them the documents they asked for? But it was because Weissman, that was, again, part of his ramp the pressure up on Paul Manafort. Uh, and, and that's exactly what it was supposed to do. It was ramp the pressure up and create in the public's mind 
This man must be as guilty as guilt can be. And that's what he was trying to do, create those impressions. And then, of course, all the leaks start coming out of what they found in the documents from Manafort's home, which they found nothing. But they, that's not what they were leaking. And, uh, you know, and all kinds of stories start playing off of that, which further, you know, create the guilt. So, you know, you're right. We were caught up in this, this unique experience that there was no, no, none, no historical precedent for at all. Just like the president's now caught up in the, in the Smarlago unprecedented actions. But, you know, now we're sort of savvy to their plan. It's the same MO. The president's not going to fall for it. Um, the American people, I don't think, are going to fall for it. I, I think they see it for what it is, deflection and a fishing expedition. And uh, it's, uh, they're not going to be able to do what they want them to do which has saved their, their election in November. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And look, now in retrospect, the Mueller investigation was the cover-up. That's number one. And number two, they just don't care what the truth is. So what I think it's Mark Twain who once said, a lie can make its way halfway around the world before the truth gets its pants on. And that is exactly what they do. They just constantly do these hit and run attacks on Donald Trump and everybody around him, including you. And they don't, they don't care about, and then when the truth comes out, there's no retraction, there's no apology, there's no compensation. There's no accountability. Right. So they're, they're going to do it again and again and again and again. And and that's why, you know, the point I'm making when people are asking me in these interviews, well, can, can you know, we win the, the the Congress this year? The answer is, I believe, 100% we're going to win. I think we're going to win both houses. Um, you know, I think that, you know, they can try and deflect with January 6th. They can try and deflect with Mar-a-Lago raid. The reality is every morning as people are sitting at their breakfast tables, talking about going to grocery shopping and getting in their car to get gas, they know there's not zero inflation. They know what, you know, their lives are more miserable. And now you see carjackings becoming a regular thing in all the big cities. Uh, you know, carjackings in broad daylight in Washington yesterday. Um, you know, the, the lawlessness that's permeating America, the, the people, there's a reason why 75% of the country thinks that the country's moving in the wrong direction. And, and a majority of Democrats don't want Biden to run for re-election. Um, and that's what's going to impact the election in November, I believe. And when that happens, one of the things that's not being talked about is that the new majority, the new Republican majority in the Congress, is going to have a larger composition of people committed to the Trump agenda than the Congress that Trump inherited under Paul Ryan in 2017. And these people will hold people accountable. They will do the job that needs to get done. I don't believe they will recede into the Washington swamp. Um, and when that happens, it's incumbent upon them, not for being vicious or, or being you know, mean-spirited or retaliatory. They need to expose the corruption so we can clear out the corruption. And that's that should be the goal. Expose the corruption. Amen. Show, show, show the, the abuse that the FBI you know, has committed, that the Department of Justice has committed in this two-tiered system of justice. And, and I believe it permeates deeper than just the leadership. I mean, because if yes. the, people the, FBI, the people in the FBI take an oath, they've got to honor that oath, regardless of what their superiors are doing. They need to expose it. And I, it's going to be incumbent on Republicans next year in the Congress, and I know Jim Jordan will do this, to call those people in and get them to tell the truth, whether it's under as a whistleblower or under or in public light, whatever, uh, and to expose it 
and then and then create the environment so that when President Trump gets reelected, because I think if he runs, he will be elected. Uh, we can clean the house very quickly. You know, I'm so glad that you raised that point, Paul, about the FBI and the DOJ. I mean, we hear this constantly from people on our side. Well, it's only the leadership. It's corrupt at the top. But, you know, there are great people, and I'm sure there are some. But my feeling is that these institutions are so shot through with corruption that is so deeply entrenched that we're going to have to need, we're going to have to have to uproot this entire thing, root and branch from the beginning. And, and basically start all over again, because I don't see how you can possibly reform this. Well, I mean, you, you, you see the same people in the Mar-a-Lago matter that were the ones dealing with the Russian matter in, in 2016, and some of them were even dealing in the Hillary server matter. And, so and re- Paul, and January 6th, they're all the same right. people. And so they're recycling it, and the other FBI agents who are watching this, I mean, I... They see it. They got to call it out. It's incumbent upon them to expose the corruption. And, uh, you know, and, and, the, and I do believe that process is going to start. That's why Mar-a-Lago, that's why, you know, people ask me, are they going to indict Donald Trump? Well, I would like to think in my heart of hearts that they will have some line that they won't cross in violating the Constitution and in the history of our country. But honestly, after what I've been through with them, I think there's no line they wouldn't cross. Right. And so I think it's a possibility. It's going to be an absurd, just like the two impeachments, historic as they were, were outrageously, you know, taken. And, they, you know, they made impeachment into a, an everyday tool of a majority of the House, not an extraordinary remedy for violations of the of office of the president. And, the, and I think they're about to, the, they very clearly could do it again here, uh, you know, on this ridiculous argument that there were secrets in the uh, in his basement that risked national security. Yeah, for 18 months they risked national security, uh, and nothing happened. Whereas Hillary Clinton's secrets on her server, top secret documents, classified documents that we know were hacked by the Russians, the Romanians, the uh, the Chinese, those weren't a threat to our country. But things sitting in a box in Trump's basement, untouched, somehow put us in national, international pearl. Yeah, or, 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 and I want to hit a quick break uh, before our final segment here, Paul, but as I tweeted the other day, Hunter Biden's laptop, not a national security threat. Donald Trump's cocktail napkins, national security threat. So um, this is where we are. Let's hit a quick break. And then our final segment, Paul, I want to ask you about the press because none of this can be done without the protection of the press, solitary confinement, Donald Trump, your family, um, and how your faith got you through all of this. More with Paul Manafort on the other side. His new memoir is called Political Prisoner, Persecuted, Prosecuted, But Not Silenced. We'll be right back. All right, we're back once again with Paul Manafort. His new memoir is really important read if you want to know what is happening to America and why we need to fight back. It's called Political Prisoner, Persecuted, Prosecuted, but not silenced. So, Paul, uh, you know, throughout your entire career in politics and consulting, we've all known that the media, the press, has always been biased to the left. But what's different in the Trump era is the level of activism and intensity on their part. So when you were going through what you went through, obviously the propaganda press played a huge role in amplifying all of these lies. What 
what what is your thinking about uh, the press right now and how, because you, our founder said you cannot have a healthy republic if you don't have an inquisitive, honest press, which we simply do not have. And of course, they, they perpetuated the lies about you. So what do you want to say about the media? Well, look, the press has always been aggressive and in some respects partisan and uh, sometimes nasty. But the, we, we always had a, a difference between the editorial pages and the front pages. And the front pages were news with, with a limited number of, uh, of public opinion, of uh, reporter opinions. And on the editorial pages, everything was fair game. Uh, that's changed. Uh, and, I, and I saw that all change. Actually, it was, it was so striking. It was a New York Times article by Jim Rutenberg. that was on the front page of the New York Times. And I think it was April of 2016. And in that article, he writes that He's have to, he has to change his role as a journalist because Donald Trump is such a threat to our country and to the world that as a, as a journalist and as an American, he can no longer be even-handed in, in reporting. He has to expose the risk and the danger to our country. Uh, and he was talking about doing that as a reporter on this front, in his front-page stories. And I read that and I said, I trust, I hope this is not going to be the case because this is going to destroy the media. It's going to destroy. It's going to make twi- the Twitter world into the front pages of our newspapers, and unfortunately, that's exactly what's happened. And you know, there's some good books out that talk about how uh, the today today's reporters are in, sort of independent contractors using the platforms of the New York Times, the Washington Post, trying to get their contracts of, you know, with the, the newspapers and the TV stations and the networks, you know, at record levels. And to do that, they've got to get their stories repeated and they've got to have the clicks and they have the clicks. They've got to have the emotion and to have the emotion. The, the best thing to do is, is take on Donald Trump. And that's what we've seen for the last seven years. Um, and, and it's become a cottage industry for reporters and it's destroyed journalism. It's destroyed journalism. And I don't see uh, any changes coming in the near future. Uh, I think it's going to move print journalism, you know, to becoming obsolete. Um, and when you look at it, Look at where media now is. The media used to be viewed by, incredibly by the public. They're now below Congress in their credibility. <laughs> and it can't get much yeah. lower than that. <laughs> yeah, that's saying something <laughs> right and, there. So, so people are reading the stories for, the, for, the, in the, in, for what they are. The problem is the propaganda is so one-sided and overwhelming that you just get washed up in it, whether you recognize that it's propaganda or, or not. Mm-hmm. And so I was guilty in the end for people who thought, who know me, know that I wasn't pro-Russian, but they, they had doubts because they were just so overwhelming on, uh, on, the, uh, on the coverage by legitimate reporters. That's a danger to our country. It's a real danger. Yeah. And, and uh, we've got to set, change Section 230 of the Communications Act and, and it put, you know, have Facebook and Google and uh, Yahoo uh, defined as what they are which are, you know, publishers, not platforms. And, yes. uh, and we've got to expose the corruption of the Zuckerberg, Zuckerbergs and all using their money, not illegally, but unethically uh, to, uh, to, uh, to influence the elections and secretively. Um, and, and, we, that's part of what has to happen with this new Congress. We've got to call them like that. You know what, Paul? I've been saying on this podcast, they, they, uh, the left are masters of projection. 
So they're always accusing our side of doing what they themselves are guilty of. So when they talked about collusion, whether it was with regard to you or Donald Trump or anybody else, General Flynn, um, the, the actual collusion was happening on their side. And most recently, we have seen evidence of how they colluded to rig the 2020 election. That was big tech, big pharma, uh, big government with the DOJ and the FBI leaning on Facebook not to report the Hunter Biden laptop story, the whole thing. The actual collusion is happening on their side, not on ours. They're not creative enough to, to think it up themselves, but they can do it and then blame us for it. That's exactly right. And, and the danger, I mean, I was amazed that this Zuckerberg aside on the Joe Rogan show about how the FBI basically told him not to uh, to print stories on the Hunter Biden laptop, how little coverage that got. And to to the new, my friends, quote unquote, in the New York Times and the Washington Post who talk about democracy dies in darkness. Well, they're making it very dark and they're killing democracy. And I'm starting to wonder if that's not their plan. Oh, yeah. It's, it it's is. so obvious. I mean, the Zuckerberg thing is major, major news. That should have been all over the news for a week. And unless you were watching Fox News and some of the conservative channels, you wouldn't even know it happened. Um, and, and that is what the threat to our democracy is all about. You know, not Donald Trump, but what the left is doing and what the, the social media in cooperation with the left is doing to push a woke agenda on the American people that it's just trying to destroy our bill of rights and in the process, the country that we, you know, we've lived in for so many years. Yeah. Yes. And a very exceptional country. I have been saying now for a while, Paul, that this is a deliberate takedown of the United States of America. I say it on Fox news. I say it on Fox business. I say it on this podcast. And now I start, I'm starting to see other people take that up. You know, a lot of people have been very wary about wanting to go there. And it's very difficult for Americans to process the idea that an entire political party, the Democrats, which is not the party of your fathers or grandfathers. This is not Bill Clinton's party. This is not JFK's party. This is a neo-Marxist party, Paul, and the Democrats are revolutionaries now. This is a Marxist revolution that we are living through. And that is, once your eyes are open to that, you understand that everything they're doing then totally makes sense. People going, oh, this is incompetence. Oh, this is, uh, they don't know what they're doing. Biden's not in control. I don't know about Biden. But Paul, I can tell you that all of this is deliberate. If it weren't, you would see a course correction just out of the need for sheer political survival in November. You would see a course correction out of Democrats in Congress and the White House. You do not. They are single-mindedly taking apart this country so that they can replace it as part of the international Great Reset with a more neo-Marxist kind of model, away from economic freedom and individual liberty and toward a more collectivist, neo-communist kind of model. All of this is by design, Paul, and unfortunately, you were in the crosshairs of this, so you needed to be taken out. And that is exactly well said. It's at all levels of our government, all layers, the local levels uh, with the prosecutors yep. and the uh, school boards to the national levels. And interestingly, I mean, one of the things that's not being talked about right now, but as I said a minute ago, with the Republican majority, it's going to be having a majority of tr- Trump MAGA uh, members in it. The Democrats, in their shrunken plurality in the House, 
I believe is going to be in the control of the woke left part of their caucus. And so they're going to even be more radical in the new Congress than they are now. Um, and we've got to expose that radicalism for what it is. And, uh, you know, part of, I've done elections in over 40 countries around the world. And I, I talk about this in the book. And, and I've gone to Davos because that's where the devil is. I deal, I deal with Davos on a regular basis. And, and I've seen the way, you know, Americans try to, American politicians you know, try to kowtow to this global vision that Davos represents and this one world concept. And that, yeah, when you, you know, because they, they want to be part of something that they think is so wonderful. But then when you break it down for them, with them in conversation, in Davos or among other places, they, they all back off. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, this is one of the problems I had with McCain. He would go over there and he would be, play to the Davos crowd, um, you know, the way John Kerry would. And it's, that's, that's not who McCain was, but they were using McCain and speaking of it in Davos to try and create that image. And so it's the kind of thing that we have to be vigilant about. And that's what I talk about in the book. It's not about Paul Manafort. Yes, you're going to read the story about Paul Manafort, what happened to him, but you could just change my name and put your name there and create an environment in your hometown. And that's you. Yep. They're coming for you. Yep. And unless you buy into their agenda, then you've got to, you've got to fight back now. And, you know, they... This, the most brazen thing I think Biden has done, he's done some incredible brazen things, was creating this disinformation bureau at the Homeland Security Board, where if you disagreed with the Biden position, they would declare you a domestic terrorist and refer you to justice to be, to be, to be investigated and possibly prosecuted for speaking your mind, for having an opinion different from the political speak of the Biden administration. Now, it felt, I mean, it was so outrageous that it came up proper, but don't think they wouldn't come back with that if they felt they were in a stronger position. Um, and that is the most, it's one of the scariest things that I've seen in politics in my life, that they would even dare to, you know, to, 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 to imagine Richard Nixon doing something like that. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Or Ronald about? Reagan. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's, it's scary what it means. And the media should have been the first ones pulling it, calling it out. The ACLU should have been right there, you know, attacking it. The, the, they didn't. The, the champions of, of, of liberty and, and civil rights, they've all gone quiet. Well, actually, I think it's worse, Paul. I think they've gone to the other side. You know, the, the right. left for decades, right, the, the 60s counterculture, it was all about sticking it to the man, sticking it to the establishment, um, you know, questioning authority. And yet now they've all been co-opted and they're all on that side. They're on the side of the fascists in this country. It's unbelievable to watch. Yeah, it's it's. And that's the right word. They're, 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 they are fascists. I mean, and again, why is Biden calling us fascists? Because he knows he is. It, that's exactly right. It's all projection. We've got to hit a quick break, Paul, but there's so much more I want to get to with you. So please stay close. We'll be right back. Okay, we're back with our final moments with Paul Manafort. 
All right, just a final question or two for you, Paul, and then I'll let you go. Um, it, you know, everybody should be reading your your memoir called Political Prisoner because we've got a lot of political prisoners from January 6th still sitting in prison without due process, some in solitary like you. If we had been paying closer attention to your case at the time and what was going on with you, which was absolutely abusive and outrageous, we wouldn't be so shocked that average Americans are still sitting in prison because of that day. And I'm not talking about the people who engaged in in some of the crazy violence that day. I'm talking about grandmas from Indiana who have been sitting in prison this whole time. So we now have a police state in America. And I want to know, you know, if, if more and more of us are going to be subjected to this before we can actually make a wholesale change in this country and get us back to where we need to be. Talk to us about how you got through that period of time. What was solitary confinement like for you? Were you terrified? And did your faith play a role in getting you through that entire period? Yeah, I, I, I go into this in great detail in the book, actually. But uh, I went from a courtroom bail hearing where I was supposedly going to have my bail package approved directly to jail. Uh, when Biden, I mean, when uh, Weissman said I had uh, tried to intimidate witnesses that weren't even witnesses um, and I hadn't even talked to them uh, and Bourbon Jackson in lockstep with anything that came out of Andrew Weissman's mouth said, I was now a risk to the community. I was a risk to the community and she, for the safety of the community in the world, she had to put me in solitary confinement. Uh, and she did, right from the courtroom. Um, and I'd never been in jail before in my life. I mean, never, never literally, I mean, been detained or anything. And so uh, I had no idea what to expect. And there's some humorous back and forth of my bus ride from uh, from the courtroom to where I went into solitary as I was discovering what to expect. But they, what they did is they sent me to a prison three and a half hours from Washington. Now, this is at a time when I'm supposed to be preparing for my trial. So they've got a gag order on me. They put me into solitary confinement, and they put me three and a half hours away from my lawyers. Uh, so it was totally inconvenient for them to be talking to me on a regular basis. And I can't speak with anybody except my lawyers while I'm in solitary confinement, not even my family. Uh, and the room is like 9 by 12, no windows, uh, a crack in the door for food to be put through three times a day. No, uh, no interaction with people, no ability to exercise, can't go outside. Um, and I'm there now when I arrive for the first time for I don't know how long. Because <laughs> I'm there until I get sentenced or I win. Um, and, and we didn't know when that was going to be. So the first two days were very difficult and we trying to sort it all out. And then I decided that I needed to look at this as I looked at every crisis and challenge in my life and campaign in my life. I had to have a plan and I needed to build a structure. And then I needed to let the structure carry me through each day. And at the foundation of that plan was my faith. Uh, I, I, I was a religious person. I always, I believed in God. I believed in the greater, you know, the, the, the greater good. Uh, and that there was a divine being that was, that had a plan for all of this. Um, and early in the processes, I was, and then, so the Bible became the first part of my day every day. And I was reading it now as a history book, not just as a religious book. And so I literally started in, in, with uh, Genesis and read the whole Bible, you know, in, in order of the way it was printed. And I got to the part about St. Paul, and, I, by, and again, this is divine inspiration happening. 
The day I was reading about St. Paul and suffering, I had a priest, the first priest to come to see me. This was like a couple weeks in. And, and I just told this priest here, you can see a priest if you want. Would you like to see him? I said, yes. So this was a priest from a, ch a, a church out in the eastern sh shore of Virginia named St. Paul. And he starts talking to me about St. Paul and the, and the suffering <coughs> and the namesake and the connections. Got me thinking about how suffering, I got to stop looking at suffering as uh, a bad thing and be looking at it as a gift from God. Mm. And I may not know the plan yet, but there's a purpose. And that affected my ability to frame and, and, and do everything. I had, uh, and I filled my day with, with writings, things that became my book, not the chapters, but the, the vignettes that, so that I would remember them because over time, I was worried that my mind would start to soften and I wouldn't be as sharp at them. And I needed to put things down when they're still fresh in my mind. Um, and, uh, and I built a reading schedule around that as well. And, and then did my own preparation for getting the documents that I could get uh, for my preparation for trial. And, and there were days, frankly, when I couldn't finish my schedule for the day, even though I never left my room. And a key part of all of that as well, and I've told this to some of them, is I had this little Sony transistor radio. That was my one connection. And uh, and, I, and I would listen to conservative talk radio, and which I never would have a chance to do when I was out in the real world. Uh, my days were always filled. But I heard Mark Levin talking. I, I listened to, uh, to Sean Hannity, uh, to Laura Ingram and Tucker, and they got me through the moments when I, I, I actually programmed certain radio time into my day so I could keep current and understand what was going on out there. And, uh, and it, was, it was a very important part of my, of my sanity. So that when I went finally, to, I got sentenced and went to the general population prison in Loretto. And for the first time being out of solitary confinement in almost 11 months. I realized that well, I knew it, but I became very apparent that Weissman's putting me in solitary for my protection was just a joke. Mm -hmm. I was in solitary to be worn down, to be beaten down, to hopefully give them Donald Trump. And if not, then just be punished. Uh, and that's what it was. Because in the general population, not only was I not at risk, but in fact, I was a hero because the general prison population Love Donald Trump because he was the first guy who did what he said he was going to do with the yep. CARES Act and the First Step Act and trying to help have a re-entry plan for prisoners who wanted to fix their lives. And so to them, as Trump's chairman, I was a hero. You know, there was nothing that, that, that was going to put me at risk. And Incredible. I grew, I grew through all that in the book with, with some detail. So there's a bunch of interesting and funny stories in there as well. But I came out of I, I came out of prison, a different person, but a better person in my mind, a stronger person. Uh, they didn't beat me back. I have I don't have bitterness. I mean, honestly, it's behind me now. I, I wrote the book as a way of, as I said, getting the truth out there and putting the story to America to be vigilant. And I'm doing these interviews now to sort of promote the book. But I don't have any anger in me. I mean, that's gone. I mean, that part of my life is gone. And I'm focusing now on the things that are important for the future. And, uh, you know, to the people who did me poorly and badly, you know, I have a very low opinion of them. Um, 
but I don't think about them. They're not important enough to be thought about other than the context of you know, telling this story. Well, you know what, what you just described, Paul, is incredibly profound. And, uh, you know, I, I admire you so much for getting to that place where you could be past all of this. And a scripture comes to mind, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Not you, not me. Vengeance is mine. So while we want to see these people get theirs, human justice is very imperfect, as you well know, but God's justice is absolute and perfect. And all of these people will have to answer uh, at some point for their actions. President Trump gave you a full pardon. This was around Christmas, right before Christmas 2020. What did that mean for you? I mean, that must have been just an incredible moment. It was very emotional. In fact, when I talk about it, like right now, I get emotional uh, because you don't know the value of freedom. And I went around the world preaching the value of freedom and helping countries to develop structures to be free. Yet until you've lost it, you don't really understand that value. And uh, and, and I and I would you know when I was going over to the courthouse from the from the Alexandria prison when they moved me there for the trial. I would be sitting in the back of a van with bars on the door, shackles on my feet, you know, handcuffs on my, you know, you know, my hands going by the road from Alexandria, Virginia to downtown Washington. I would drive by every to drive every day in my car. And I would think to myself, what will I ever be able to drive this ride again uh, without these bars and without these shackles? And, uh, and so when he gave me that pardon, the, the pardon is effective immediately, that moment that he published it. So at 5 o'clock on December 23rd, I was a free man. All the crimes I'd been committed, accused of were, were wiped out. And uh, and I uh, the next day, I took that ride. And uh, it was the day before Christmas, but I, I drove across the Memorial Bridge and enjoyed that ride with no bars and no shackles. Mm. It was a wonderful feeling. Incredible. And on Christmas Eve, no less. So there's a spiritual message there for everybody, not just you, Paul, for everybody. All right. Final question for you, Paul, and you've been so generous with your time. Thank you. If you were advising President Trump now, um, and he's going through the latest iteration of the deep state attack on him, but I think he's clearly running for president. And earlier you said if he runs, he will be he will definitely be the nominee and could very well be the next president. So if you were advising him, what would you tell him about how to run in 2024, knowing everything that we know now? Well, I think the, the key thing should be who is president matters. And all he's got to do is compare his record with the Biden record on the economy, on border security, on energy dependence, on America first, on international affairs, and he wins. And it's and it's and it's irrefutable. They can't, they can't, there's no answer to it because the facts speak for themselves. He doesn't have to get caught up in any of the sidebar stuff that they're trying to get catch caught up in right now, because to the American people, they know that as president, he made their lives better, and Biden as president has made their lives worse. And I believe Biden's running again. I think he will be the nominee if he runs. Uh, and that, there can't be a better contrast than Trump versus Biden uh, on the two records of their presidencies. And, and it should be that stark and that clear cut. Yes. And you know how I've put it, Paul? I've gone out there and said, all Donald Trump is going to have to do is just stand there. 
<laughs> because the contrast in the policies is going to be so stark. You're exactly right on this. Paul Manafort, his brand new memoir is called Political Prisoner, Persecuted, Prosecuted, But Not Silenced. And guys, you're always asking me, what can we do? What can the average person do? The average person, you and me, can go out and get this book, read it, and absorb all of the lessons here in the book because we have to be girded for battle every single day. We're in an existential fight for the country. And Paul's experience here is so resonant and it applies to all of us because they are coming for all of us. Paul, I can't thank you enough for being here today. God bless you. Thank you, Monica. It's great to talk to you again. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Paul. Wow, what an absolutely unbelievable interview. I think that might be the most extensive one that Paul has given. And it's a real window into what we are up against with our own government weaponized against us. It's terrifying and it's real, which is why we all need to vote Republican in November. Seriously, guys, this is go time. If that interview didn't convince you of it, I don't know what will. That is going to do it for me today. Thank you so much for joining me here on this hump day and for checking out our great sponsors. We all really appreciate that as well. I will see you at the Nixon Library tonight for my talk. In the meantime, have a great rest of your week, and I will see you right back here with another big show on Friday. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.